we have a lot of conversations here at, at the table, and one of the things that I like to focus on is hospitality. I think that hospitality is something that we need more of in our lives. It, it's something that we need more of in our politics, and that has been one of the core missions of this conversation over and over again. I am gratified by the literal and figurative hospitality I'm experiencing right now because I'm in Guy Snodgrass's home, I'm in his office, I am sitting there at his desk with him, and we are about to talk about his book. Guy Snodgrass, who was Director of Communications and Speechwriter to Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, he was a naval aviator, Top Gun instructor, combat pilot, now retired, and the author of Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. Guy, thanks for spending some time with me at the table at your desk. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Let me start with, again, hospitality is crucial, but I feel like I have to start with something unpleasant, which is the the reviews this book has gotten from Mattis and his staff. Mattis is on the cover. His name is on the cover twice. His Oath of office is on the back. It's the only thing on the back of the bo- of the dust jacket. It's you. You've got his oath of office on the inside near the frontispiece. You, you talk about him constantly in the book, and yet his assistant Candace Courier referred to you as a junior staffer who quote took notes in some meetings, but played no role in decision making. She also said your choice to write this book quote reveals an absence of character and accuses you of violating public trust, and I think potentially most significantly, she argues you, quote, surrendered your honor to get the information you put in this book. Can you respond to those things before we begin? And again, it is not the most hospitable opening, but I feel like that's where we have to start. That's not a problem. So when I remember seeing that come out, it was uh, covered in several news channels and some people were asking me about, you know, what were my thoughts on that? And I think my first thought, of course, was that I was a little bit disappointed. By his own admission, Secretary Mattis said that he had not read the book and had no plans to. So that shows you right there that he doesn't understand and has not yet seen what's actually in the book. He's responding to headlines, and that's always a dangerous place to be. The other way I'd respond to that is that Secretary Mattis knows better. We both served in the military He knows that he cannot define my own honor, my courage, my integrity. That's something that I do through my own actions. So when you think about where we are uh, in today's current highly politicized environment, uh, it's polarized environment, with what I had the honor to experience firsthand behind the scenes while working alongside Secretary Mattis, I felt it was critically important to get that word out, to share it with the American public, because in my In my case, the way I was raised by my parents, my community, and throughout my two decades of military service is that honor and courage and integrity means doing the right thing regardless of the consequences, not when it's just politically palatable to do so. What's the right thing that you're trying to do here with this book, but also in the conversations about it like this one? So again, there's so much misinformation being pushed in today's current environment. You have, whether it's the left side of the aisle, the right side of the aisle, there's just We've seen it. People are being pulled further and further away from the middle and towards the extremes. And that's a very dangerous place to be for a couple reasons. One is from my vantage point and my time behind the scenes with Secretary Mattis, you you can see the actual real damage being done to our alliances and our partnerships around the globe. And those are alliances. Those are relationships that took seven decades following the conclusion of World War II to put into place. And over the matter of just a two, three years, they've been called into question, they've been challenged, and our allies and partners are openly questioning America's resolve around the world. Are we the partner of choice? And that's something once you lose or degrade that status, it's very difficult to get back. 
And I would also say, because of that misinformation that's been passed around, to be able to provide the American public with a firsthand account of what actually is happening behind closed doors. Nothing that's, of course, classified or would betray ongoing operations. That's not the point. The point is to say you have a very unsettled national security environment, and Americans need to be able to read for themselves what it's actually like to make decisions at that level so that they can decide what they think is important. DOD tried to delay or halt the publication of this. You sued or threatened to sue. Can you explain what happened and why? When I first started writing the book, I left Mattis's office in, at the beginning of August 2018. About two or three months later, after having some time to reflect on my experiences, my year and a half alongside Mattis, and with conversations, of course, like you always do, you just want to, after having such a high op-tempo job, you just want to rest and relax and have some good food, go running, you know, kind of rebuild the normal day-to-day life instead of being in your office for 14 to 16 hours a day. Talking with my friends and my family, they said, what an amazing experience, why don't you share that? When Mattis left office at the end of December, I reached out to him via email and said, I'm considering writing this book. I'm moving forward with the project. I'd love to chat with you. And if you'd like to help provide some guidance, I'm happy to sit down and and discuss. And he had a phone call with me. And in that phone call, he worked to dissuade me from pursuing this project. It was very obvious he did not want me to pursue writing a book about what I had learned and what I'd experienced behind the scenes. You fast forward to March. Now the publisher is going to announce the book. I, 24 hours prior, emailed Secretary Mass and said, boss, out of respect for you, I want to make sure you know this is coming. And he forwarded that email to the Department of Defense attorneys to put it on their radar to make sure that they uh, that they had that information. And they subsequently came after me. They It took many months to from the time the book was submitted in April. It was blocked until August. I was given a heads up from the Pentagon that they had actually finished the review, but they were directed by senior leadership to not release it. And it wasn't until a month later when I filed a lawsuit that the Pentagon swiftly, within about a week, the Department of Justice, who's now involved as the attorney, said, yep, uh, you're going to get the book. Please, please uh, step back from the lawsuit. So we were, we were able to get it successfully out. But you're right. This is not a book the Pentagon wanted to see in the public. Former secretary has his own book that he's out promoting right now. He describes himself, and many describe him, as trying to stay above the political fray. But when you say that this, what you're doing is important, you believe it's important, and you think that maybe uh, the silence or an omission isn't above the fray, what, what do you make of his position, both as regards his book and your book, when it comes to, is he actually staying above that fray? That's a real difficult conclusion to reach. When you think about, I mean, look, this is what I love about America. One, I love the fact that out of openness and transparency, I have finally been afforded the opportunity to share my experiences with the American public. I also like the fact that Mattis feels very strongly about the views he has. He and others who have spent decades of time in uniform, in his case, 43 years as a Marine Corps officer, he has very deeply, strongly held views about what he should and shouldn't share. And he's following his own ethical and moral guidance, the way he sees it. And so I can respect what he, uh, his position, just like I, could, I would hope that he would be able to respect mine. But if you think about just the importance of getting this information out there, in his book, it's been highlighted that he discusses behind-the-scenes conversations that he had with Presidents Obama and Bush. He also describes some behind-the-scenes conversations he has with current presidential candidate Joe Biden. And he also, in the book, lays at Biden's feet the deaths of tens of thousands of Iraqis because we sought to withdraw forces. So 
you know, it's, it's a very, I, I can, I'm experiencing it myself right now. It's a very fine line to walk. I know what he intends to do, but I'm not sure he was able to accomplish what he set out by remaining apolitical and above the fray because his book by definition is talking about not only current events, but individuals who could be potentially the next president of the United States. Guy, I, I look at specifically the accusation of surrendering your honor. I'm not military. I, what in your work do you think, uh, obviously it's not your conclusion, it's someone else's conclusion, someone on behalf of Matt, uh, Mattis. What do you think in your work warrants that kind of uh, accusation? Again, they, they haven't read the work. I sent them a copy. They've admitted that they haven't seen the book yet. So I believe that they're simply firing from the hip. They, under, they knew the book was going to be released. The release was imminent when this statement came out. And it strikes me as it's an opportunity to potentially poison the well. Uh, this is a standard operating procedure, especially in Washington, D.C. So you talk about let's remain apolitical, but it's a very political move to say uh, this person was a minor staffer who who had no role in, ma- in decision making. And you may not be aware of it, but when that article first hit, I was being asked to respond and I didn't provide any personal response. I simply posted on social media the Defense Superior Service Medal that Secretary Mattis had awarded me when I retired from the U.S. Navy, which highlights the hundreds of speeches that uh, he gave to world leaders that I had written, the national defense strategy that I authored, other things that I had had a hand in doing. So I I decided to let Secretary Mattis' own words speak on my behalf. When you say, as you just did, shooting from the hip, that's something that you in the book, and certainly you're not the only one, accused the Trump administration of doing on many occasions. There's also something about the accusation, and I'm sorry to spend so much time on this, but I feel like because it's it's the subject of the book in so many ways, I want to I give it a fair airing. There was something else that in that phrase that struck me as, as, as Trumpian, which is, criticizing you for taking notes. In fact, you you write about it in the book. Others have written about this. Trump seems to be, he doesn't trust people who are taking notes, even his attorneys who are taking notes. And so when I saw that in the criticism levied from Mattis's assistant, I said, this is, do you, do you think that um, there's been some influence taken or perhaps they were more copacetic these two people in their in their styles maybe more than even you thought when you were working for him because it feels like a very trumpian accusation to levy uh, at you well i think it was peter baker from the new york times who tweeted out a phenomenal response and and what he wrote was mattis takes a takes a break from his self-promotional book tour to slam aid for writing self-promotional book. And I thought that, you know, look, Peter Baker said it better than I ever could, that it just had this air of hypocrisy. And I hate to say that because I, I hold Secretary Mass, you know, in high regard. I worked alongside him for 18 months. I believe that what he did a public service for the American public by coming in and serving as, as defense secretary. I mean, he came in off of retirement to take the job. So I think that there's a lot to respect about Secretary Mass. And frankly, there's a lot to respect in the book, meaning that there's there's just as much equal weight on all the positives that were accomplished, whether it was regaining a increased military budget so you could restore lethality, so we could increase our military's ability to, to operate on the world stage, to the national defense strategy and getting that out first time in a decade that America's had one, to all the other elements of things we were able to bring in. And yeah, there's, there's some good things to highlight, but I've also always believed, this comes from my background as a Top Gun instructor, as a fighter pilot, when you would fly a mission, you had to brief it, and that's, of course, incredibly important. You have to do all the due diligence on the front side. You fly the mission, which is where you have to actually execute well, otherwise people's lives could be at risk. 
But more importantly was the debrief that happened at the very end because you'd go back, you'd review your tapes, you would understand what really happened, not just what you thought happened in the heat of the moment, but you look at all the good things. But more importantly, you focus on the things that you can improve. And again, I, I spend time in the book doing that because I think there's a lot for members still in the administration that they could learn from this book, but also the American public and people who are going to follow in my footsteps. It's not lost on me. I wasn't the first comms director for a secretary of defense, and I certainly won't be the last. There's a lot in the book that I believe anybody could pick up and say, wow, there's organizational philosophy. There's what's really going on behind the scenes. What was that chaotic administration environment like and how did we deal with it? And I think those are all important lessons. One of the things, and this is early on in the book, um, you are critical of State Department airing grievances with the White House. You talk about, you know, unfortunately, this wasn't very productive. And you're saying, hey, this, this, you know, this isn't a good procedure. This isn't this isn't how you're going to get things done, guys. And and you, you say that at a couple other points later in the book as well, talking about how just whether it's backstabbing in Washington or just just things that don't work. And, and it comes across in the book, I think, that you seem like a very pragmatic person, which doesn't surprise me given, again, your, your background. But that's how you certainly come across uh, in the book and, and the time that I've been able to spend with you. But isn't airing of grievances, isn't, isn't talking about the dirty laundry some of what this book does? What I guess what makes what you're doing different and better than what was being done in those processes at that time. One of the things that has always struck me is I saw some of the early reporting before the book was released. Now that the book's out, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Wall Street Journal, every review that's come out has universally praised this book and said that they've praised it for the insight it provides, they've praised it for the bipartisan, apolitical approach it takes, and it's more of just a memoir of my experiences. What did I see? What did I learn? And what should we do about it? As opposed to what I've seen other books that have been kind of lumped in with mine being regarded as tell-alls. And so that's, that's not what this is. It's not a, here's the color of boxers that Secretary Mattis wears or, or something goofy someone did because you want that gotcha moment. That's, that's not at all what the book's about. It's, we are at a critically important period of time for America. It's a very highly polarized period of time. When you think about those alliances and partnerships I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, how just how critically no nation has ever thrived when it goes its path alone. You have to have those relationships around the world. It makes us stronger, and we benefit economically. We benefit militarily. We benefit diplomatically by having those strong relationships. And pulling out your pistol from the holster and repeatedly shooting yourself in the foot because you want to lead through tweets as opposed to policy or well-thought-out, uh, coordinated efforts within your own administration just strikes me as a fool's errand. And that's why, again, I think the book's so important because you've heard people who are highly polarized and politicized talk about that fact, but no one has yet come out with a book like this one to say, here's what's really happening, here's what it looks like, here's what you should be concerned about, and this is what I think we can do to fix it. The book is Holding the Line, the author, Guy Snodgrass, who's here with me. We're actually in his home and uh, able to talk about this. I I'm really glad. Actually, people, it's not a tell-all, but people should know that there's a, uh, there's a moment in the, in the book where you describe some of this backstabbing in Washington, how it almost, you almost thought you would lose this home at one point, which is, uh, I'll let people find that for themselves. Let me ask you a different question. I, I, I've spent a decent amount of time talking about some of the criticisms of the book and I'll be honest with you, if it weren't the secretary's office and if it weren't 
there, there's a hagiography about Mattis that I want to get to at some point, and that 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 comes into why I want to give those things so much airing, frankly, because I I don't think. I, if this were any other book, I frankly don't think I would be talking at this amount of length about essentially what's one negative review from a frankly a very interested party. So I understand that journalistically that's weird. Let me let me ask you a different question. You describe, especially in the early parts of the book, but but um, later on, a lot of details about the relationship, the intimacy that you have. You know, having a very small team of speechwriters, usually about three people who are doing most of the work. You were one of them. Uh, the the deep planning sessions where you would have, and the kind of the direct knowledge. So we've, we've spent some time talking about the discrepancies of your background, but let's recredential you for people. How would you describe the relationship? You said 18 months uh, with the secretary. How would you describe that relationship, and what kind of knowledge? Because you've been you know, a communications professional for a decent portion of your career at this point. You have to get to know someone really well. I've, I've written speeches for people. It's a tough thing to to get their voice, and you know, holding the line isn't just the title of the book. It's it's a line from a very important speech that Mattis uh, gave that you helped write. How did you come to have that voice, and and how did you establish that relationship over eighteen months? So when you think about your first when you first arrive on a team like this and you have to know your boss's voice, there is that close continuing contact. Within a few months of my arrival, when I when I showed up, I was already the chief speechwriter, and I had a comms director in front of me. And then within a few months, he faded away. He wanted to pursue some opportunities in the private sector, and now I get elevated to not just chief speechwriter, but the comms director. And that means I'm in his front office. That means I have close continuing contact with the secretary, with the chief of staff. You're in. You're at the nexus of information that's coming into the office, and this is not only political information or military information. It's everything streaming in from around the world. I mean, America's a nation with global responsibilities. And of course, America's military has global responsibilities as well. So that helps provide the context. You understand the tapestry of what's occurring around the world. So you kind of get plugged into the stream of knowledge. And more importantly, Mattis was willing to spend time early on just talking about his experiences, his background. And he's an incredibly consistent guy. He had, because of his time as a general, as a uh commanding, or excuse me, the commander of U.S. Central Command, there's already a wealth of information about Secretary Mattis that's in the public domain, speeches he'd given, interviews he'd provided after he retired from the Marines. So it was it was wonderful because he's very consistent. Once you learn his voice, once you're inside his head, then you can uh, live there pretty comfortably. It's a weird thing to think about because for people who don't, but most people barely think about the words that they say for themselves, let alone <laughs> giving a lot of thought. But you're talking about strategic level thought at the highest le- at the highest level for someone who's making decisions that are impacting the entire planet. And I think about that. There was a weird no- uh, mention at the beginning, by the way, and and and, and I don't want to go back into the part where I'm trying to decredential you. But there was a weird moment at the beginning of the book where you mentioned that you you weren't interviewed by by Mattis. Uh, that's a weird thing to to be elevated to someone's senior staff without having gotten a face to face. Or is that not strange? It it struck me as strange. I don't think it is strange when you think about the fact he was nominated relatively late in the game. He was confirmed, of course, in the January timeframe, comes into office. By the time I arrive on staff, he's been there about three and a half months. And he is caught up in the nuclear crisis with Iran. He's caught up with the ballistic missile and nuclear crisis with North Korea. You have China 
feeling emboldened in the Indo-Pacific and rattling its saber. There's a lot of worldwide issues that he's already midstream on. And for him to pull someone like myself in, I think there was also, it was a vote of confidence because I'd already been a speechwriter for a four-star admiral that he knows very well. That individual and several other admirals that he knew well had vouched for me and said, this is the guy you want. And the quote that was given, which I love, was from my old boss, the chief of naval operations, a guy named John Greenert, who had said, hey, this is the guy you want. He cannot be overtasked, incredibly loyal, great guy. And so just, I think, on the strength of that. In fact, in the, de- in the book, like I detail, the deputy chief of staff interviews me. He says, man, you're great. Let me grab the chief of staff. The guy didn't say a word. He walks over, shakes my hand, pats me on the shoulder, walks out. And the guy's like, oh, he loved you. I'm like, how do you know that just from what happened? But it- I laughed, by the way, I laughed so hard at that because I have never been in a, in a job interview as strange as that. So that, th- thank you for that, that anecdote because I, I actually had a moment. And it's not, it's, not like there's a, it's, it's not like it's a funny book, but there was certainly that moment where I was like, this is just, this is not normal. And, and one thing I'm going to go back to, because your previous question, how do you learn his voice? The biggest compliment you can get from a guy like Mattis is that after I'd been in the role about maybe four to six months, you don't have to spend as much time with him. He, he knew he could look at me and say, bus, my call sign, uh, bus, I need this. Can you get it to me in a couple hours? Yes, sir, you got it. And he had to provide no other direction. He knew I had a shared background as a warfighter, as a combat pilot. Uh, he knew that I had been a speechwriter before. I knew his voice. So you had get you, he had given you the that vote of confidence. You could do the job, get it into him. He'd make a couple tweaks, and you're off and running. And that's great because it means you're not stealing a lot of your boss's time when he has more important things to be focused on. People who have heard this conversation have already heard you describe your dissatisfaction with the way um, you know, the, the president leads and, and makes decisions by tweet, et cetera. And that is detailed heavily in the book. And I would encourage people to read it because it's some of the, whether it's on the question of the transgender uh, troop ban or some of the decisions uh, around the world with uh, with military levels, just, just the way these decisions are made, those are certainly some of the moments in the book that I would encourage people to read for themselves uh, because... It is stark. But you describe early on being, the word you use is appalled by Trump's style, and you distance yourself from some, not all, but some of his policies. And I'm putting myself, I'm putting myself in the mode of someone who's trying to understand this from a more political lens, because of course, that's how all these things are going to be judged on whether or not that's the final judgment, but they're going to be looked at that way at some point. And I would imagine that a Trump supporter would look at this and say, well, how many guys in Mattis's office loved Trump? How many guys thought he was great? And so my question to you is basically that I'm, 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 that's not me. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm not, you know, enamored, and I, I certainly agree with you that I, I actually think it's pretty kind to just be appalled by the, the stylistic. I think that's that's relatively kind. But you describe that, and then I think to myself, we know the kind of love and loyalty he requires, this president. Was there anyone from Mattis to anyone on the staff who who? gave him that? When you think about, so this is now the office of the Secretary of Defense. It's a political position, and a lot of the staff members that you surround yourself with are politicians or have political backgrounds. So they adhere to a lot of the Republican Party doctrine. For those of us who are wearing a, a uniform at that period of time, we've been trained throughout our years of service that 
you remain apolitical because regardless of, of the party in power or the individual who has the office, you owe them your best judgment. You owe them the ability to carry out their directives as long as they're legal to the best extent possible. So I don't think it was a matter of whether you, you love the guy or you dislike the guy. My beef and what I really cover in the book is just how short-sighted the decision-making is. When you operate without a strategy as an administration, when you only respond to contact or the latest headline and you catch everybody off guard, you're shooting yourself in the foot. This administration could be so much better off if there was a plan. If there, it, We would be so much better off if it was coordinated. So maybe, maybe you've already presupposed that you'd like to ban transgender individuals from serving in the military. Maybe you've already presupposed you'd like to withdraw from military exercises with South Korea or the creation of a space force. Coordinate that with your cabinet officials. Coordinate that with your allies and partners overseas, but you don't catch them unawares. There's this it's not uh, serving at this level is not unlike any other aspect of life in America, whether you're in a small town or you're in a corporation, there are just ways that you can go about it that will help generate success. And that's usually through transparency and alignment with your team. It's not catching them off guard. When you do that, not only do you get to a worse result, but you also find that the people who work for you tend to freeze up and just say, well, I'm not going to do much of anything at all because I don't know what you're going to do next. So we're just going to wait for the next tweet and we'll just kind of stand by until that happens. And when you do that, you're losing this opportunity. And I know we don't want to get probably too deep into geopolitics, but if you think about the challenges America faces on the world stage, you've got a rising China, you have a Russian, uh, certainly through Putin and, and the country itself, you know, they want to challenge America on the global stage, Iran, North Korea, we've talked about. These are countries that want to compete with us openly. And when they see America pushing away our allies and partners, when they see us withdrawing, like we just did recently from Syria, a no-notice withdrawal, Russia and Iran rush in to fill that void. And I, I had a conversation two days ago with a gentleman from Israel saying, we don't know if America's a partner of choice because now we're worried because other nations are coming in. And so how does that change how we operate? And that's not just for one country. It's multiple countries throughout the world expressing that concern during Mattis's time. And I'm sure they're doing it now with Secretary Esper. Guy, I that, it's a good answer, but it's not the answer to my question, which was about the team members. Because you at, at one point, uh, and, and by the way, I think you talk a lot about the need for alliances, and certainly Mattis in his time as secretary talks about the need for alliances, and the refrain that we keep seeing, the antagonist is often Stephen Miller and the president uh, when you're describing this back and forth, but it's it's not America alone. It's even if it's America first, that's the, the refrain that you keep that you keep pushing back on. But my question was specifically about staff, because you talk about yourself and you're pretty clear, and I think people can judge you based on what they read in the book for what you think. And you're right, uh, everyone I know who's ever worn a uniform will give me the answer that you just gave me, which is you try to be as apolitical as possible, and you carry out the mission. And I know that, as you detail in the book, you weren't always wearing the uniform, but I don't want to get into that technicality because that's that's not that's not that doesn't elucidate the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is you know that whether it was you know blocking never trump people or demanding this loyalty or just just this obsequiousness like you talk about when you describe the the first cabinet meeting that we all watched and 
and and and you describe being very proud of uh, Secretary Mattis's uh, <laughs> answer in that, and I and I remember watching it as a reporter and thinking with a sigh of relief as well, thinking at least someone's not going to do what everyone else around this table is doing. But my question was about staff. Was there someone on the team who was the equivalent, as as dissatisfied and as appalled, using your word, as you were, was there someone who was excited about Trump? Was there someone who was enthusiastic about, and were they on the speechwriting team? I'm just trying to understand, because if Mattis's voice is to, to, because at some point you're writing for the Secretary of Defense, but you're also representing this administration, this president, was there someone who had that loyalty? I, again, I don't think it's a virtue, but I know that someone who might support the president who might be listening to this conversation might think it's a virtue. Was there someone who had those credentials? So you may not like the answer and you may find it dissatisfying, <laughs> but look, we worked for Secretary Mattis. Right. It was incredibly important. And as you read in the book, Mattis is even quoted, or I quote him as saying, look, there's not an inch of daylight to be between us and the White House. So he was loyal to the president's policies and vision. We, I worked with Stephen Miller, as you mentioned, to make sure that what we put out was aligned with White House policy or what something that President Trump had already said. And I think it's surprising, like we talked about, the highly polarized and politicized environment. No doubt your listeners are shocked that, okay, there's no way you can have a staff that is largely just focused on the task at hand and, and isn't scheming behind closed doors, whether it's for or against this president. We've all heard about the deep state guy. Come on. Yeah, proud member. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I know that that's been a, a talking point recently. And again, I mean, maybe it was just because I worked Secretary Mass. He made it very clear throughout his entire tenure that he would not foster that kind of environment. It was, and he said repeatedly, and I, and I quote him in the book for, through the course of a year and a half, we're an apolitical department. He would say, all comers are welcome. Republicans, Democrats, independents, it doesn't matter. We are America's military. We work for them. And so it's important for us to not get caught up in the political heat of the battle. Because, again, you think about America's military, we've enjoyed a reputation since the 1970s as the perennially the most admired institution and most trusted institution in America. And when you start drawing it into political fights, and I know that this president has been drawing the military increasingly into his corner or seeking to do so, that's dangerous because now you politicize the military, you draw it away from its apolitical tradition, and you're going to start to degrade and erode that trust of the American public because they might view the military as more a function of who's in office rather than simply serving America's best interests. So we were laser focused on remaining apolitical. We had members from the Republican Party who joined the team, who had been vetted. Obviously, they're going to be in closer alignment with some of the policies of this current administration, but it was never something that was talked about openly. I still don't feel like you've answered my question, but you've segued into what was a question I wanted to ask also, which is this president has sought and achieved a blurring of that line, uh, whether it's, and you describe a couple of examples that are notable, whether it's uh, Hall of Heroes moments or using uh, uniformed service members as a backdrop for partisan speeches or making certain, uh, or the military parade. I mean, these are moments that, is this a genie that can be put back in the bottle? Because whoever's president next, whether it's in, you know, a year and a half or in four years or what. It may be very tempting to keep doing this because we know, as you say, that the military is pretty popular with quite a few people. That's not likely to change in the near future. And a president of any party might be able to say, 
boy, this is this is a pretty good thing. I might want to keep this going. How do we how do we stop that? Uh, how do you think we stop? And especially now that you're retired from the military, you you, uh, you know, this is a different hat for you to be a different cover for you to be wearing. You know, it's not for me to say how you stop it. You've got a new secretary of defense, uh, Secretary Mark Esper, who's been in the role now for however many months. He's obviously aware of this. Let's put it this way. It was became such an elevated problem that you had Secretary Esper release a statement about polarizing nature, the politicization of the military. You had the acting Secretary of Defense, uh, Richard Spencer, who's actually currently the Secretary of the Navy, had released not one but two memos saying the same thing. So there's there's a pretty bright spotlight on this topic right now. But to your point, there's always that risk that it's a it's a very convenient backdrop. It's a very patriotic looking backdrop when you see members of the military standing proudly behind the elected president. And let's not mischaracterize this. President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, they've all had moments where the military has been involved. In, and it is appropriate if it's a military centric topic of conversation. But I think it's just something that we need to be aware of. We should not overly weight things towards the military. And we also shouldn't artificially put members of the military up on a pedestal either. Well, we talk about that that pedestal, and I mentioned earlier the the kind of, um, the, there there is a little bit of a cult of personality around Mattis. Let me let me widen the question somewhat. You also talk about John Kelly in the book, another another general. But we talk about this 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 idea of lionizing these men. I think about some things that have been black marks on their record, whether it's Theranos or Kelly and his work with internment uh, you know, uh, the, these detention facility contractors, these are guys who've made some questionable decisions. How does that reflect, how should it reflect on their service? And and how do you think, what's your assessment? Again, not just as someone who's worked with, with both of them, but also as now as a private citizen who gets to uh, have an opinion and not worry about being apolitical and, and, and vote and do all the things that we get to enjoy. I think it's important for your listeners to remember that Everyone in the administration, regardless of party, when you are when you have a senior leadership position, you're just an actor on the stage playing the role that the best you can. So there's going to be challenges. There's going to be curveballs you never see coming. You do the best work that you can. And that's why I mentioned earlier the danger about just artificially putting members of the military up on a pedestal. And that could be anyway. I and mean, that could be me as well. I mean, I you know— it, I have witnessed during the course of the last two weeks as I've been discussing my my experiences with members of the military, you and I appreciate the kindness of thank you for your service. Thank thank you for what you've done for the nation. But look, it was an honor to serve. Uh, and I always, you know, just kind of feel like saying, hey, thanks for paying for my salary. You know, I mean, it's, it's coming from American taxes. So thanks for allowing me to do what I was uh, afforded the opportunity to do to fly high performance combat aircraft. But everybody is unique. You don't put someone on a pedestal. And I've always loved the fact that the military seems to be very good about holding our leaders accountable. You know, one of my favorite sayings when I was a commanding officer in Japan was professionals invite scrutiny. So that's an, a theme I hope resounds throughout the book is that, again, it's dangerous when you believe your own hype, when you become, you know, as you might say, drunk on your own whiskey as opposed to saying, okay, well, we want to be the best organization, the best nation, the best administration. So let's actually do the things behind the scenes to make sure that we're we're headed in the right direction. And again, this gets back to that theme of if you don't have a strategy, if you're not willing to actually put the things and the processes in place behind the scenes to make that a reality, then it is a lot of hype and it is a lot of just uh, empty words. Do you think that 
Mattis's and Kelly's other commitments deserve more scrutiny? I think everyone has an opportunity to research for themselves, to learn more about them, who they are as individuals. And I have no doubt this is such a, there's no, it's not lost on any of us that this is a unique moment of time. And, and everyone talks about the echoes back to the 1970s, whether it's President Richard Nixon or just the Vietnam War and how everyone, everything was so politically fraught. It feels like we're seeing echoes of that today. And that means there's going to be a, a lot of scrutiny placed on this moment in time. There's going to be a lot of historians and, and fact checkers and everyone who wants to come back through and say, okay, well, what really happened and what can we learn from it? And I, I have no doubt that individuals like McMaster and Kelly and Tillerson and Kelly, uh, excuse me, Mattis, are going to be scrutinized heavily. And I think that that's healthy because they're, again, professionals invite scrutiny and it's always good to find out, more importantly, not just the scrutiny, but what can we learn and how can we improve as we move forward? The book is Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. The author is Guy Snodgrass. I'm Jared Rizzi, and this is At the Table. Guy, the last conversation I want to have with you is about who this book is for. You describe in detail throughout the book uh, Trump's managerial style and his intellectual capacity, and, and you're, you're not as uh, bearish on the latter as some people might expect. Can you, you give examples throughout the book. Can you consolidate for the people who are listening to this conversation and thinking about getting a copy what your assessments are? Because I thought they were fascinating. You provide a lot of examples uh, throughout your tenure. Uh, you, you, uh, you provide those meticulous notes uh, <laughs> that uh, you were criticized for taking. Can you just talk a little bit about what you saw and, and what you experienced and why you describe at one point uh, you understood why access to the president was so limited? So when your listeners pick up a copy of this book, they're going to be able to get a really deep look into Secretary Mattis, who he is, what he stood for. You're going to get a very deep look behind the scenes uh, and, and information that's never been put out before about briefing President Trump in the Pentagon, demonstrating for him the importance of America's military and seeing his response, which was so far out of left field that it frankly shocked us. And I describe in the book how when I went back upstairs, I'm pale. And my friends were asking me, what happened? Are you okay? And it's like, man, I, I don't have time to tell you about it. I got to run to Congress right now with the boss. But it was alarming. So it brings him into the room for that. It brings him in the room for the second time that he, President Trump, travels to the Pentagon. He, we provide him a briefing about uh, the national defense strategy, the nuclear posture review, which is about America's nuclear arsenal. And of course, this is President Trump who has the keys to America's nuclear arsenal. So you get a chance to, to read about that experience. You get a chance to see in the spring of 2018 when McMaster had left as national security advisor when Tillerson had left as the secretary of state and all of Mattis's friends and cohorts and and people he was aligned with in administration suddenly disappear how he's vulnerable and left exposed and we have a meeting in the Pentagon with national security advisor John Bolton we bring in Mike Pompeo the current secretary of state and you get to see behind the scenes as you see that balance of power shift away from Mattis and towards others and uh Again, it was something that when you witness it firsthand, you're like, wow, I can actually see that happening real time. Mattis is no longer the quote unquote last adult standing. He has already been passed by and you and he knew that, too. And it also brings you behind whether it's the nuclear crisis with Iran, the nuclear and missile crisis with North Korea, our allies and partners in NATO, one of our strongest and most long-lasting alliances, and how President Trump went to Brussels and blew the whole thing up. And not only that, but the White House misled us 
about what was going to be said in Brussels. So we were caught flat-footed. The creation of the Space Force, where we had no idea, despite asking the White House what was coming, and they told us nothing would change, and suddenly, surprise, creation of the Space Force, and 15 minutes after it's announced, Chief of Staff John Kelly calls over to tell us, hey, guys, surprise, Space Force just got directed, and the president told the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to make it happen. Completely caught flat-footed. So not only will it bring you in for some major pieces of decision-making, it's going to give your listeners a very valuable perspective on where we are today with Syria, al-Baghdadi, some of the impeachment inquiry information, and then also as you think about where we're going in the future for the remainder of President Trump's term, whether that's a year or five years, it's going to provide that insight, much like Art of the Deal, about how he works, how he thinks, how he sees the world. And I believe that if you're in the administration, you can work more effectively with him. If you work out of the administration, you'll learn a lot of uh, what's really going on behind the scenes. And for every American, you're going to have an opportunity to really understand the important role that the men and women in the Department of Defense and America's military plays on your behalf. You describe, though, you describe Trump's attention span as short and his temper as mercurial. These are not new observations. And, and so I wonder who the book is meant to convince, because you talk about this idea of needing to say something, wanting to do the right thing. But you know that the central problem, you've talked about it several times, is this exacerbated polarization during the Trump era. His supporters seem immovable. How would you try to explain to them, and I'm sure you have plenty of people in your life who might disagree with you, and maybe you'll be seeing them later this month for Thanksgiving. Uh, I imagine that's, uh, that's usually a fun time. But how do you explain to them why you believe, as you've written, that this president makes us less secure, and that Mattis believes that this president made us less secure. Here's what I think is interesting about what you just said, is the normalization of this kind of chaos, where you say, look, there's, you say there's surprises, you say that you're caught off guard, and you know, there's nothing new there. And, and the thing that I think your readers will be, or your listeners, when they read the book, will really be drawn in on is when you condense it into one single book, and you show that arc of a two-year span of time, but it's in one book and you get a sense for just how chaotic things really are. When you're, in the, when you're in the public, you believe that, okay, look, I'm seeing these things. It's manufactured. It's an act. This is how he behaves. In this case, President Trump behaves in the public eye. Behind the scenes, he's not that way. No, no. What you see is what you get. And that's the thing that when you condense it like this, I think that it is new, it is unique, and it's very, very specific. It uh, brings you in the room. It provides quotes that are attributed to specific individuals. So that's something that you don't normally see. That's something that most Americans have had no opportunity to really engage with. And I think that's probably one of the most dangerous aspects of what we've been experiencing for the last few years, regardless of your political affiliation, is just when you normalize this kind of behavior, the fact that uh, even right now you've got the ongoing impeachment inquiry over alleged quid pro quo for withholding military aid to Ukraine to get dirt on a political rival. And we've kind of reached a point in our national discourse where everyone's like, eh, it's just the latest yeah. crisis. And, and that normalization, if you think about President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, uh, President Bush the first, you know, the triggers that would have started an inquiry like this would have been much lower. And so it's, it's, we live in, you know, fascinating times. And that, in fact, that's how I end the book, you know, may you live in interesting times. And I say, I know I sure did. And I thought it was great to be able to have this opportunity to share that with your listeners. But what you're arguing here, look, look if Trump is a buffoon and Mattis is the warrior monk, why did Mattis lose? What, 
you describe, for example, the the times where he would delay. I know this is a, a bureaucrat's favorite tactic is the, the, the six month study or the, the slow walk. But if 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 Trump is really what he is, as you describe in the book, and if Mattis is even half of what some people who are out there lionizing him believe that he is, why did Mattis not? Why why did Trump beat him down and basically kick him out of the administration? What what happened? So I'm going to disagree with you. Trump is not a buffoon. Uh, Mattis himself and I, I witnesses up close and personal. He's a pretty shrewd individual. He is intelligent. He can see where the political winds are blowing. And I think people are very frustrated that he's incredibly effective, as we've seen, with maintaining his base, with uh, getting you know that call to arms, and even with the members of the Republican Party currently uh, unified. We, I mean, just yesterday, we had the formalized vote to begin the impeachment inquiry, I guess, in a more public fashion that was held, and it fell almost exactly along party lines. And so individuals are not breaking for President Trump. At the end of the day, he is the elected president and commander-in-chief in the United States. There has been plenty of ink spilled and plenty of time expended as people talk about, well, should you fight for an impeachment to see about removing him from office for alleged improprieties, or should you simply focus on the 2020 election and vote uh, to either retain him or to bring someone else in to, to do the job behind him? And so I don't think you're going to have a definitive answer. When you talk about the relationship between Mattis and Trump, again, he was elected in that office. Mattis was appointed to his. He serves at the pleasure of the president. And at the end of the day, if you have a president who wants to go his own way, if he wants to disregard the advice of experts in national security and in military affairs, it's his right to do so. It's also the American public's right to make their determination if they want to keep a president like that in office. Well, I would describe someone who ignores the advice of experts as a buffoon, but maybe you you will differ. The last question I have for you, Guy, and this is kind of holistically, you begin the book with an anecdote, a harrowing moment that you experienced during flight uh, training, I believe, uh, and you talk about the priorities as a naval aviator. Aviate, navigate, communicate. And as I was reading the book, for most of these, I mean, this is on page two, so this doesn't prove that I, that I read a damn thing. But but I, as I read, the, I, re- I read the whole thing, and I went back, and I, and I was looking at it again, and I thought to myself, are you, are you communicating too soon? Have we landed this plane? Because you've, the criticism that we talked about at the front of this conversation about you know, w- your, your honor, which, uh, again, as a non-military person, kind of seems a little, a little heavy to me, but um, are you talking before the plane is on the ground? Are you talking maybe while the plane is still on fire? Because you just talked about the impeachment hearing. You talk about the decision the American people will have to make in about a year. Is this too soon to start communicating? I'm, I'm concerned because you, you lay that out, and I, again, don't have that background, but I think about this, and because this is an audio conversation, I was very keenly aware when you were saying, if you, if you get on the radio or if you like yammering on the radio too soon... That could be a life or death decision that you made, and I wonder if this is too soon. Do you what, have I have I started to make you worry? No, not at all. Okay. And I would never have pursued this project if I didn't think I could do so in the right way. I reflected for months on one whether I should write this book. To your point, is now the right time? And it's not lost on me that when you've seen a lot of the the national level discourse about Mattis's vow of silence and loyalty to Trump, Kelly's relatively 
strong vow of silence and loyalty to Trump. And even Secretary of State Tillerson, who has said more, but really hasn't provided much perspective. And he said he said quite a bit uh, in on background, which is not uh, Mattis's style. But he, Tillerson has said a, a, quite a bit more. Well, let's 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 be honest. It's Madison style as well. I mean, to to talk on background or off the record, uh, that's just the nature of how these things work. But I don't think it's too soon. What I think is unfortunate is when, just like I said at the beginning, honor and character and integrity counts, and it means doing the right thing regardless of the consequences. It does not mean waiting until the political wins in your favor. And we see that time and time again in America, especially from politicians who will know that there's something that should be discussed. They stay silent, and then all of a sudden, when the winds start blowing in their favor, they start popping up saying, oh, hey, hey, yeah, I was there, and, and I can reinforce that this was a either a good or bad moment in time. And to me, that shows a lack of leadership. Leadership matters. I mean, leaders lead. It matters at the moment of... Uh, just, you know, the critical moment in time. It doesn't matter three or four years down the road to say, well, hey, by the way, uh, this is what we saw, and it was pretty rough, and uh, this could have helped you make your decision about what you think about the, uh, the current state of affairs with America's national security, with America's place in the world, or what's going on in the, in the current political climate. And so to get something out that's an accurate firsthand account that people can read for themselves and make a judgment call rather than just being pushed around by a talking head who wants to tell you what you should think, I think is a critically important thing to do. I would encourage people to do that, but of course I'm a talking head, so what I encourage you to do doesn't matter. The book is holding the line. Guy Snodgrass has been joining me in his home. Again, hospitality is a big part of At the Table. Guy, thank you so much for writing this book, for inviting me into the home to talk about it, uh, and for spending some time with me at the table. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for your time. It was great chatting with you. I also want to thank our mutual uh, friend, Sean G, for the introduction here. Uh, if you heard the conversation that we did with Steve Lee a few uh, weeks ago, you know that Sean is basically um, sicking me uh, on all of his Annapolis grad friends. So uh, I'm, I apologize to anyone in the future. To, and, and by the way, for people who are listening to this conversation, uh, there is going to be a version of it, a fuller version on Patreon, uh, some of the, the moments that we've included. I, again, for people who enjoy the conversation and are able to contribute a little bit uh, and think this is valuable, uh, I appreciate that a great deal. But also, uh, I would recommend buying Holding the Line because uh, this is a book that I enjoyed reading quite a bit. It is not, as Guy said, a tell-all, but it is something that that is uh, pretty meticulously reported out, and I uh, appreciated the fact that there were no... Uh, very few anonymous uh, sources in this thing. So uh, it was it was a, a real pleasure to read and also a real pleasure to talk to you. Again, thanks to Guy Snodgrass, and uh, this is At the Table, Jared Rizzi.